As you uh, look to 1 Corinthians 12 this morning, we'll be starting in verse 12. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can grab a copy in the pew and uh, borrow that for this morning. We're going to resume our study of a most important chapter in the Bible when it comes to the truth that we need to know that spiritual gifts from God should be present and active in every Christian's life, and out of that activity, the church of Jesus Christ grows. It's that simple that the church of Jesus Christ, local and universal, this church and every church that is faithful to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to acknowledge Jesus Christ as the head of the church, no man, no other institution, Christ alone is head of the church. If we understand that, then the only thing missing is the activity we need to carry out His mission in the earth, and that is done through spiritual gifts. Now, if you're new as in you've just been here this summer and we're jumping into the middle of a chapter and uh, towards the end of a book and you're wondering where we're at because we started there back in mid-April and uh, we've wrapped up by the end of May and then we did a diversion over to the Psalms this summer and now we are back finishing out 1 Corinthians 12. So if you are new, you could go on our website and listen to a sermon series called Now Concerning Spiritual Gifts. It's very creative. Uh, right there in the first line of uh, chapter 12, now concerning spiritual gifts. Uh, They pay me the big bucks to come up with these titles. So if you are behind and you want to catch up, you can go back and catch up by way of listening to those. Otherwise, we will start today in verse 12, but I want to just give you a quick summary of what we saw in chapters 1, or chapter 12, verses 1 to 11, and I'm smiling because you know it's not going to be a quick summary. It will be. Uh, To refresh your memory, verse 1 taught us. These are all things, when Paul said, now concerning spiritual gifts, he's, he's just highlighting, I need you to know this, I need you to listen up. We're on a new topic, a new issue that the church needs to be aware of, and here's five things I want you to know, and I'll just give you in summary fashion what things he wanted the church to know in verses 1 through 11. The first thing is, how about this one, we should know about spiritual gifts. That's right there in verse 1. I don't want you to be unaware or ignorant. Ignorant is, or ignorance is not bliss. No pleading ignorance. First thing you need to know about spiritual gifts is you need to know about spiritual gifts. Easy enough? All right, we're tracking. Next thing from verses 2 and 3, you should know that no one has a spiritual gift without having the spiritual gift giver. As in verse 3, uh, you can't Say, Jesus is Lord. You can't speak by the Spirit of God unless you have the Holy Spirit in you. You should know that no one has a spiritual gift without the spiritual gift giver, the Holy Spirit. It's of greatest importance in this opening section that Paul establishes that you must be born again to have any spiritual gift. If you have not been born again by the Holy Spirit... Trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, seeing your need as a sinner to be forgiven before a holy God, then you have no chance of having a spiritual gift because it's not something that you can conjure up in yourself. You may have natural gifts as a speaker, as a generous person, as benevolent, as caring, but those gifts do not terminate used out in the world on God's glory, but your own, or or some other end. You have to be given a new heart. You have to be born again from above, not from below. So the second thing he wants this church to know is nobody is using any kind of spiritual gifts around here if they have not been born again except by the Holy Spirit. And that's by confessing that Jesus is Lord right there in verse 3. Third thing he wants you to know, and that's in verses 4 to 6, You should know that you don't get to pick the spiritual gifts that you get. Very evident in 4 through uh, 6 that it's the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God who gives varieties of gifts, ministries, and effects. Like everything you could see that would be connected to using a spiritual gift in church, the use of it, I should back that up, the receiving of it, the use of it, and then the effect of it is all from one source. And you don't get to pick what it is you're going to get. It's entirely up to the triune God. Notice the Holy Spirit in verse 4, Jesus the Lord in verse 5, and God the Father in verse 6. It's the prerogative of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, to determine and deliver 
the spiritual gifts that you're going to receive. You don't get a say in the matter. Verse 7, fourth thing that Paul wanted you to know is that uh, you don't have those gifts primarily for your own good, to show off with, to feel good about yourself with. Those, that would be a, a corollary benefit that in using your spiritual gifts in the church, you should feel some sort of good kind of pride in that. You get to be useful. But notice, each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The primary reason for you to have these gifts, for their usefulness, the ultimate reason is God's glory. But after that, it's that you can use them for someone else's good, the good of the church and God's common grace in the world. You're last on that list. And then the fifth thing he wants you to know in the first 11 verses, and this was um, in summary fashion from verses 8 to 11, as you see there, is you need to know that the Holy Spirit has given great varieties of spiritual gifts in the church. And that's the summation of all the different gifts that he talked about in verses 8 through 11. There is great variety in the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to the church. The gifts are as diverse as there are people. Because no two Christians have the same makeup of spiritual gifts. So think less about like a box of Crayola crayons as the church and your orange you feel orange? Purple? I don't want to be purple. It's not how the, that's not how the church is built, that you're just, uh, just this one color with this one gift. But in the vein of talking about, you know, art, I guess, Crayolas in my house are led, lead to art. I think more of a Bob Ross color palette. You know Bob Ross? Great hair. It's why I'm growing mine out. I'm going to permit and never have to mess with it again. Uh, Think of a Bob Ross color palette. That's you. You are mixed with some of this and some of that, a little bit here, a lot there. And as those colors are mixed, the variety of gifts that you have individually, you paint some what? Happy little trees spiritually speaking. But that's really more of how your spiritual giftedness, Christian, is made up of the varieties of gifts that you have. You just don't get, squeezes out a bunch of red on your palate, and that's all you are. There's a little bit here and a little bit there, and it makes up a, a variety of colors so God can use you to, if you want to use the illustration, paint something amazing to His glory. So those five things... Don't be ignorant. Know who the source is. Know who selects them. Know the purpose of them. And know that they come in a plurality. All the the words that are in plural there. Gifts, ministries, effects. All these things, verse 11. There is intentionality in the diversity. So if there was a big picture God is trying to get across in those first 11 verses in 1 Corinthians 12 about spiritual gifts, a big part of that is God wants us to see and to celebrate the diversity of spiritual gifts. And as we jump back in today in verse 12 and go to verse 26, we will learn that amidst such diversity, going against the grain of our society, you can actually experience unity. Because in the fractured world that we live in today, you mention the word diversity, whether it has to do with the diversity of nationality and ethnicity or diversity of, of worldview and opinion, the last thing we would connect to that is unity. Because when we think of diversity in the world today, we think, if, if anything, it just causes us to divide even more. And actually, that's contrary to the way God has designed diversity in the church. Done right, diversity is consistent with unity and is essential for functionality. That's what you'll see today. That's what really the whole chapter, chapter 12, teaches. That diversity is not running contrary to unity. It's consistent with unity. Because that diversity is what makes the true 
the best, the greatest expression of functionality, the usefulness of a body of people working together. It's the diversity of those people working as one that make it maximally effective, maximally fruitful, maximally functional. Cutting against, again, the mentality we might have of our inherited from our American forefathers, rugged individualism. It's not the way that the church becomes maximally fruitful. And that's what we are to be. So with that as an introduction, follow along as I read 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 26. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body. It is not for that reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I am not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as He desires. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And on our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God stands forever question what are you made of most of you have probably been asked that question in your life on a uh, philosophical level even though the person asking you it probably does not have a degree in philosophy. Because most of the time I was asked that question, it was from a football coach. <laughs> Nothing against football coaches. I'm one of them. But it was usually a question of, you know, the idea of, um, do you have some fortitude, some guts, and somebody trying to inspire you to greater heights? He says, what are you made of? Nothing kind of what you want to say. So you say something. But I'm asking you this question on a physical level. The actual composition of you. What are you made of? My son asked me that question this week. I think it was before school started, so I'm not going to blame the educational system. But he just looks over and says, Dad, what elements are we made of? So I did what most dads do today. The unique advantage we have over dads of the past. I slide my phone out. <laughs> I first look up the periodic table. And then I start making things up. <laughs> I thought it'd be cool to tell him we are made of adamantium, or whatever Wolverine was. Um, but it did get me thinking about this and that gets me thinking on other things. And then you look it up, and so we find out together. One of the reasons I'm not going to give my kids a phone until they're 20 is so they can't beat me to the advantage. <laughs> Pro tip, parent. Uh, the truth is, we are combined 
are comprised of about 21 elements that actually make a difference from the periodic table. There's trace elements of other things that they say really don't do much for us. The big four, carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, and nitrogen, that's 96% of you. The other 17 things are under 4%. So if you wanted an answer to that question now, maybe young person, if a coach gets in your face and says, what are you made of? You could say, carbon, <laughs> oxygen, hydrogen. What was the other one? Nitrogen, thanks. <laughs> and then you'll have to run a lap, I'm sure. <laughs> but with that comes a follow-up question, and I'm going somewhere with this. If that's what you're made up of, then what are you worth? Anybody ever ask you that question? Maybe again, try to motivate you. What are you worth? Close. Somebody just mumbled, I think, 36 cents? 96 cents. Very close. Back in 1924, founding Mayo Clinic doctor Charles Mayo stated to peers at the American College of Surgeons in New York, the total drugstore value of a man is about 98 cents. Enough water to wash a pair of blankets, enough iron to make a 10-penny nail, lime sufficient to whitewash a small chicken coop, and enough sulfur to kill the fleas of a good-sized dog. <laughs> Due to advancements in science and in inflation, as of 2003, that number has risen to $17.18. Now, why did I share that other than for the vegan CrossFit guy in the room to be not so obsessed with his body? Our bodies, broken down into elemental parts, have very little value in and of themselves. Our chemical mixture accounts for pocket change, if you will. But when you mix all those elemental parts of you into God's perfect pharmacy, how he made man and woman back in Genesis 1.26, you get a person whose worth is priceless. It's true. You can't put a price on your body as a whole. In its elemental parts, yeah, you can move it out and separate it out and say, 17 bucks today? Really, that's it? A 10-penny nail? But yet, when God put the human body together, He came up with something priceless. It's the unity of the chemical diversity in our physical body that makes us priceless, and that's the point Paul is going to make that you just heard me read from verses 12 to 26. And he is doing this by way of a somewhat, I don't want to say sarcastic, but there is a tone you heard in that imaginary conversation between body parts to try, to try to bring the point home through the side door, not always just through the front door. He's been doing that for 10 chapters in 1 Corinthians. He's just been driving right through the front door with their sins and problems, calling them out exactly as they are. Here in chapter 12, when he needs to truly emphasize the unity that needs to be amidst the diversity, he uses an extended illustration to try to show them, somewhat from a, a funny point of view, how ridiculous it is for us to be so caught up in our own individuality. Blinded by it. So that we don't see that our greatest effectiveness for God's glory is in our collective unity. That's the point he's trying to make here. And that's the point for Hickory Bible Church today. And fitting as we are here for the last Sunday as a unified whole to hear this as one. That we will have far greater usefulness to the gospel mission in our community and around the world as we understand how we as individuals are members of one body. So we ought to live like it. So let's begin in verses 12 to 14 just with an anatomy lesson that ought to humble us when we look at the only perfect body that has ever existed. You get articles about having the perfect body. It's a lie. Because no matter what you could change about your body on the outside, there could be something going wrong with you on the inside. There's only one perfect body, and it was Jesus Christ. And it's the church body. Perfect in its what? Imputed righteousness. Perfect because He was perfect. And by faith, we lay hold of His perfection. 
And that's really the theme of the first three verses in 12 to 14, as Paul wants to emphasize how we can have unity and diversity. First, he points us to our origins. As the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though there are many, are one body. And here's the connection he makes. So also is Christ. Paul relates our unity and diversity to Jesus Christ and the body, which we call the church. Now, question, where would Paul pull such an idea out of? Was it just out of the blue that he gets this idea that I want to try to symbolize by way of an example, a metaphor, what the church is like, and he connects it to this idea of a body? He got the idea from Jesus himself. The first theology lesson Jesus taught Saul was on the road to Damascus. And he taught him that theology lesson with a question, didn't he? When he said to him what? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But see, when you go back to that narrative, Paul was asking for letters to go to the synagogues at Damascus, that if he found any belonging to the way, speaking of Christianity, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul just thinks he's working against, he says later in Acts 26, I was trying to work against the name of Jesus Christ. Little did he know that what he was actually doing was working against what? The body of Christ. And he learns that lesson in the first words that Christ speaks to him, and he never forgot them. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says back, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That's where this is based out of. That Paul didn't just get creative and think like, what's, what's the best way I can illustrate the um, the unbreakable union between Christ and his body. That if I'm in Christ, I'm also in the church. He had to just go back to the beginning of his own conversion. That was the first lesson he learned, and he never forgot it. Nor should we. Lays a certain amount of weight, doesn't it, when you take that and think about how you treat the body of Christ, doesn't it? Not just how your relationship with Jesus is. We ask that to each other all the time. But by way of extension, in the next breath, our relationship to Jesus is represented by what? How are you treating his body? His blood-bought brothers and sisters. And Paul uses this idea of a physical body to help make his points, because we can understand how our bodies are one and at their best when all the members are working together. There's many members, and um, we need them all working together. And Christ is using this body analogy and saying, so also is Christ, to say that in the same way, Christ's body of the church was made to be maximally fruitful, not minimally functional, so that we would know that our diversity is meant for the greater good of unity, and that in unity, we can reach our full potentiality to make an impact. I mean, that's, that's what all of this is for, to be working together for the common good. Verse 14, the body isn't one member, but many. And then to, to drive this home, he goes back in verse 13 to say, look, how did you get into this? You didn't get into this based on uh, God seeing in advance the diversity you would bring to the table. He did not bring you in because of something special about you. That's his point in verse 13. For by one spirit, we were all you're a Christian, baptized into one body. And it didn't matter of your ethnic pedigree or your societal standing. Those are the two points he makes right there. And those must have been dividing line issues in the church at Corinth 2,000 years ago in the same way they are today, calling it what it is. Ethnicity, nationality, whatever you want to call it today, gets you no closer to being brought into the family of God by the grace of God through the Son of God. Get you no closer based on what you look like on the outside or your societal standing, a slave or free person. The, the richest person or the poorest 
None of that adds up to anything when it comes to being brought into the family of God. So you can leave it at the door. Paul's answer is, you're not going to find unity, church, in some sociological theory because what brings us together is no sociological theory. It's a spiritual reality. You are brought into one body, the body of Christ through the Spirit. And he uses some other language there in verse 13. You're all made to drink of one spirit. What's, what's this language about? It, it's, it's language of immersion, being drowned, being overtaken by the Holy Spirit when you were saved. And I'll revisit the second point I made at the beginning. That just because you're sitting here in church today proves nothing about the spiritual reality of whether or not you have been born again. I mean, I'm glad you're here, sincerely. But you've heard it said time and again, coming to church makes you no more of a Christian than, what's the thing about parking your car in the garage? Something like that. I forget what it is. You're here. Big deal. Your physical body's here. But it's spiritual. Have you been born again by the Spirit of God? Has Christ saved you? Has He brought you out of darkness into light? Has He canceled the debt of your sins on the cross? All of those things He offers. But as we mentioned last week, have you received them? Have you come to Christ laying down the burden of your sin and letting go of the weariness of your own attempt at some form of works-based righteousness? And you abandon all and put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way that you are in the body of Christ, baptized, immersed into the body of Christ. That's the only way you get in today. So friend, can I ask you, are you in Christ? Have you been born again? Not of anything that you have willed or tried to do. John 1 As many as received Christ, to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name. It's by faith you've been saved. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's how you're born again. Born from above, not from below. And this morning, Christ offers you Himself. He offers you His perfect, righteous life in your place. No matter how righteous you think you are, You're not righteous enough because there is no one righteous, no, not one, not enough to earn their way to heaven. And then not only does he offer you his righteous life, he offers you his substitutionary death, that the wrath of God that is over you, that abides on you, he received the punishment for that on the cross. So have you trusted in Jesus Christ today as your Lord and Savior? for the forgiveness of sins. That's how you can, back to verse Corinthians 12, then be considered in the body of Christ. So right now, the opening section here is just a lesson on the perfect design of the body of Christ. Nothing external, as we tend to think of perfection in the body, internally, that you have been brought in by being made righteous by Christ alone. Now you would think... That would be enough to get the church going on the right track. But see, the problem is, even as we are born again and our sins are forgiven by Jesus Christ, and we are made righteous by Him, we still have what? Indwelling sin. And the indwelling sin that He is going to dwell upon over the remaining verses we'll look at today is the problem that a dear brother brought out whenever we were talking about the... uh, the issues of the church and what really prohibit unity in the church. And this brother of mine, almost 90 years old, 70 years in the faith, summarized it when he said, Adam, you know when the church is in trouble? When I, me, and my show up. And that's the problem we'll address with the remaining time we have in two ways, talking about the issue of ego. Paul has now answered how that we are to work together for the common good how we relate to our gifts. But now he wants to show in verses 15 to 26, not how we relate to our giftedness, 
but how we relate to one another. And the biggest hindrance that divides the church in relating to one another is the problem of our ego, human pride. And we will see it expressed in two ways, though it's the same problem. It's our pride and how those egos can threaten unity in the church, which keeps us from maximal usefulness. So let's look at ego issue number one, verses 15 to 20. Ego issue number one, the self-centered view. I don't matter. Now, on the surface, doesn't sound prideful. Kind of in an Eeyore way, the person can throw themselves a pity party and slink into the background. And we don't necessarily think that that person's ego is going to be a problem in the church. Because we think of ego as the boisterous one. The person that thinks they're better than everybody else. But that's not the way that Paul sees it. The first threat to unity in the church by way of ego, by way of pride, in 15 to 20, is the person who says, I don't matter. And their self-centeredness shows up by always comparing up and therefore keeping, if we want to use body language, the body bottom heavy by not joyfully serving. There's always looking up above them and around them. And so nothing gets moving where they are because of ego. Notice the language of ego in 15 and 16. And it's just there in the repeated phrase Paul uses, because I am not. Verse 16, the ear says, because I am not. Remember my friends saying, when I, me, and my show up, you're in trouble? Well, this is now just an illustration from the physical body. But the problem is the foot is saying, I am not a hand. And the ear is saying, I am not an eye. And that's going to prohibit the body from being all that it can be. Now, just make this note that when we're talking about diversity, um, comparison is inevitable. So comparison isn't the issue. I mean, in the sense that when you're in a group of diverse people, we compare things. We differentiate. But that's not what Paul is saying the problem. It's the ego that comes in with the comparison. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to resent it or rejoice in it? So Paul uses an illustration from a body. The first one, he says, if the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body anymore. And the connection there is, um, these are, and it's the same with the eye and the ear. They're in the same strata, if you want to call it that. This person who's focused on self, first it's the foot saying to the hand, well, I'm not a hand. Notice the foot isn't uh, looking off into the distance and talking about the brain or even the ear or the eye. It's, it's an extremity, and the foot seems slightly less important, maybe because it's lower on the body, or maybe that foot thinks, you know, I got these toes that can't do the things that fingers do. I mean, we're similar. We, we both come at the ends but I just can't do all the wonderful things the hand does. Woe is me if only my toes were more like fingers. Well, then you would be a primate. Thank you. Next, I mean, he's not trying to make a a whole big difference in this, but he does point out the ear saying I'm not an eye, but he's driving home the same point. That it's that, yeah, you're in, I mean, foot, hands, we need you extremities. Eye, ear, we need you complexity. I mean, it's not like the ear in this analogy is saying something about the hand or the foot. It's just looking at the closest complex organ near it and starting to complain. Remember, this is the person who's saying, I don't matter. And we could all see the usefulness in the body of eyes and ears and hands and feet. But because they're just not satisfied that, you know, really close to me is this other extremity and they're just more useful or this other complexity and they're just more useful. Now, what's Paul's answer to both? That's where it really gets interesting. Well, on on one simple level, he just rejects it when he answers in both times. Just because you say you're not part of something doesn't make it so. Okay? That's the first lesson to learn from this. So the person who might be in this church... Maybe you're just visiting, you're in another church. 
and you just have that mentality, like, I don't matter because I'm not them. Well, just because you say it so doesn't make it. So first pride check today. Your opinion on your own value doesn't actually mean anything. Just right there. (laughs) It's not for this reason any less part of the body. So you're in the body. So if you have that first barrier, if you want to call it, to being useful for God's glory and others' common good, Paul just, he's kind of starting maybe on the simple and just let's move that one out of the way. Just because you say it is so, it's not so. And now also notice that in this... um, Then he goes to kind of a logical argument. If the whole body were an eye, say I grant to you that ear you should be an eye. Where would the hearing be? And then he says, and if all of you were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? And so he just points out the problem with that physiologically, the abnormality of it. It would just produce a mutant. In the church, we would get uniformity, but that wouldn't bring what? Wouldn't bring unity. If everybody had the exact same giftedness in the church, if everybody got their way of being like the person that they want to be like and having their gifts, and you would just have a mutant, if you want to call it church, that all thinks and talks and does the same, and that wouldn't be effective for gospel ministry. I also find it interesting that Paul is not placating this bad attitude, is he? You know, what do we tend to do with the person that kind of has the I don't matter mentality in life? It doesn't have to be in the church. You might have a whiny kid like that. Wah. And we placate them. Oh, no, you're, you're, you're okay. Just the way you are. That's not Paul's attitude to a person like this. He's not trying to placate immaturity. That's what this is. He rebukes it. In fact, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 3, when you start to see an attitude like this, envious and jealous, when you see envy and jealousy, 1 Corinthians 3, spring up, what does he call these people? Fleshly. That's an evidence of carnality. You're thinking like the world thinks. Oh, I'm not like them. I must not matter. So when you see envy or jealousy in a church, 1 Corinthians 3, you're fleshly. And he could even say it's not just being fleshly, it's being immature. Verse 1, I can't speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. When you see envy and jealousy sprouting up in a church, you'll dig down deep and find the roots of immaturity and carnality is what Paul has been teaching. And so it is here in 1 Corinthians 12. Somebody that wants to just make it all about them. He doesn't give the impression that that's okay and we should, oh, it'll be all right. Just give it some time. He says, one, you're just wrong on the level that you're wrong. You're no less part of the body because you don't think you matter. Uh, Two, if you got your way, the church would cease to be the church. We need diversity in it. But three, and where he lands this issue, is not just a logical or a physiological problem. It's a theological problem. Look at verse 18. Your ultimate issue is you are complaining against who? God. So it's not merely a getting out of the analogy now. Physiologically, you just won't have a body that can function if you're all one ear. 18, but God has placed the members, every single one of them, in the body, just as He desired. Your issue is with Him. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? God himself has placed. He, the, the phrase God has placed is, is just this root idea of he caused you to be. He made you to be. He brought you to be. He placed you to be. And so the opposite is true. You didn't cause you to be. You didn't make you to be. You didn't place you to be. What's the net from that? You are far more important and valuable than you realize because of God's design for you, not your own. You see, he ends on a note of encouragement there. I hope this section, if you have that disposition to say, woe is me, I don't matter, and you think like, I've just been making you feel worse about it. Well, I've been trying to show you the sin in it because I love you and I'm called to do that with the word of God. But let me show you the glory in it. The glory is that God made you the way you are. So whatever estimation you have of yourself, his estimation of you is far greater. If you could just 
See it for what it is according to his word and not according to the way you want to see things. And I, I get it. You can show up in church and it goes against the way you have been taught and raised your whole life. Maybe in certain churches even, even you know, soft-gloved when you would start to say, yeah, I don't matter. And you kind of like the attention. That by saying something like that, you got attention. But you were never called to the attention of your sinfulness in it. You are complaining against God, the God who placed you and made you and formed you and brought you. And this is the beautiful word he adds to that. Not in some um, disinterested uh, sovereign selection. That God is like this big Ford factory, just processed. Just, no. What does he say at the end of verse 18? He did this just as he desired. That's a word for God's will, his heart, his passion. He designed you according to his desire for you. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you, Christian. And that same love of God demonstrated for you when his son died for you is the same creative love in giving you the gifts that you have. So you shouldn't feel sorry for yourself at this point. Maybe feel sorry for the fact that you've stayed in the state that you've been in for so long. And now you can start to see clearly. If you have the I don't matter mentality, He ends in 19, just reiterating the point he's been making all along. If we all were one member, where would the body be? That's just another way for him to get back to this idea of how would we be the thing God created us to be if we were all just the same? If I gave the immature and carnal their way, it wouldn't solve anything. So that's the first ego issue, I don't matter. The second ego issue, number two is, verse 21 to 26, you don't matter. 21 to 26, he now flips it. Going from the person that's looking up all the time to the person who is looking down on others all the time. And rather than this then body becomes bottom heavy with nobody doing anything down below, this person will lead to a body being top heavy. A bunch of dead weight at the top. You know, the attitude that no one can do it like I can do it if only everybody were like me. So he creates the other end of the example, the other end of the spectrum. Verses 21 to 26. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. And again, the head to the feet, I have no need. Do you see the difference now? The condescension? An eye more complex than a hand? I don't need you. I just need my eye. In fact, you should probably be more like me. Or a head, maybe speaking to the brain function, to the feet. I don't need you. But then he rebukes it, corrects it. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. That word for necessary, you can write in your notes, indispensable, in fact. And what Paul is using, again, this is the analogy, this is the illustration. He's talking about body parts that just because we can't see them, (laughs) and then the ones we can see, doesn't make the ones we can't see non-essential. Lungs, heart, liver, invaluable, right? Protected behind layers of stuff. I had to Google that one. Layers of stuff. God's perfect design for your body. The most vital organs you have protected by layers of stuff. Keep you alive. But yet we can get caught up on the things we can see. And he's saying the lesson he's trying to teach here is appearance isn't everything. Sorry, Andre Agassi. I think it was the commercial in the 90s, right? Appearance is everything. Taking pictures. Great hair. Don't assign value purely on the outward appearance of things. Your heart. Da-dunk, da-dunk, da-dunk. Not talking about like your heart, your passion, but your heart. Pumping all that blood through your body. I don't even know, a million, trillion times more important than your hair. Not looking at any bald guys. But yet, and this is kind of where he's going with this example between the things you can see and the things you can't see, it doesn't mean just because you you can see certain things, that must be the most important thing. So, friends, think about your hair. I thought of this as I was doing my hair this morning. It took about two hours. 
But I was thinking in the five minutes I was doing my hair, I haven't spent five minutes thinking about my lungs. Like, oh, I got to get these things pumping today. You know, whatever that would be. Or my heart or my liver. I spend no time thinking about them. I ate some kind of cereal that probably does my heart bad. And that's Paul's point here. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's less valuable. Just because it's not up front. Your eyes, your ears, hands. Okay, those extremities he's speaking of. The more presentable members. The ones that you cover up. That's the language he's using in verse 23 of presentable and less presentable. Things you cover up doesn't mean they don't matter. In fact, they matter all the more. Some just for common decency, but others for protection. Whereas your hair, you spend however long you spend on it today, you can cut it, falls out, loses its color. Clearly not more valuable just because it's more visible. You catching it? So then he transposes this into the church. Verse 24, God so composed the body to give more abundant honor to the member which lacked, as in it lacked it in its position inherently. That just because it's not visible doesn't mean it's not valuable. So he's trying to confront the egoist who maybe has the gifts in the church. Chapter 14, tongues and prophecy is likely where that's going. And everybody was thinking, I got to have tongues and prophecy to be something in this church. That's the experience. That's the wow factor. He's saying, that's not how God designed his church. He so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body. There's the so that, there's the reason. But that the members would actually care for one another. Because that's what the body of Christ is here to do. Back to verse 7, to care for the common good. That if everybody just ran around being, at this time, the prophet or the tongue speaker, who would do the caring? No difference today. But my gift plays a small part here. Because it ends when this sermon ends. Now the word of God abides. Plants itself in you. Produces fruit. But like my speaking role, it's over in about an hour. <laughs> As one brother came up to me last week after the whole movie thing and Jaws and the length of my sermon, he just walked up and said, you're going to need a bigger sermon. I was like, that's good. That's good. So I think of this on a very um, recent level, practically speaking. Um, a saint in our church went home to be with the Lord this past week. And as far as I know, I don't think she was a preacher, teacher, the testimony that people gave of her life was behind the scenes. She was a servant. All the way to the end. That was her reputation. The, the, the eulogy was about going through Proverbs 31 and, and people that knew her up close just connecting all of those character qualities to her life. And, and zooming out from that picture... My role was to show up and for 15 to 20 minutes preach the gospel there. But her life preached the gospel there. I mean, my gift allowed me to say things to promote Jesus Christ. But her life lived as a follower of Jesus for 75 years. Preached Christ in the way that she lived. And then also she was an evangelist, always wanting to share the gospel with people. And this is Paul's point, just because... Adam gets up there and he's visible. Makes him no important than anybody else that's doing the work of the ministry in here with the gifts that they have. Because what is that work? It, down there in verse 26. It's the work of mutual ministry. It's the care that we have for the body. That when one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. When one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. That takes no speaking gift to do. It can help. I can offer a word of comfort at a funeral or a word of rejoicing at a wedding. But it's the life and the body of you all using your gifts together that makes the thing go round. All the people that help with that funeral or help with that wedding, whatever other things we do around here, it's all of your gifts being used. Because we're one another. We, and when then, and you see this on the care level, 
that when we really have love precede that which we do rather than pride get in the way, then you do feel the pain of another member and you do feel the joy of another member is his point in verse 26. When letting all you do be done in love, not out of your ego needing stroked. As you do it out of love, out of care, and the body grows because, and here's the point he's making, the, the body does this naturally. Like using the analogy of the body, when you, um, I remember as a kid, one time putting my hand on something hot I shouldn't. And you know what was instinctual in me? <laughs> like my mouth just knew to kick in. My brain knew to get that hand near his mouth. <laughs> it, it triggered defeat. Get that hand to the fridge to some ice. The body knew how to take care of itself. My feet weren't hurting, nor was my mouth, but they came to the need of my fingers that were on fire. Do you understand what he's saying now in verse 25 and 26? That's the instinct of the body to care for itself. Whether in a time of suffering or in a time of rejoicing, this is how you see your body act, and this is how we should see this body act. So, as I wrap it up, just a reflection question for your heart. You and I referenced Christ saying to Saul, why are you persecuting me? But can you flip that around? Can Christ look at your life today and the way you're using your gifts here, the way you're treating other members here, your attitude toward others? Which, what, which comment would he make on your life today? Why are you persecuting me? If you're spreading gossip, if you're being of ill will to people, if you're slandering others, why are you persecuting me, he would say to you. Christian, because that's my body. Would he say, why are you ignoring me? Why are you neglecting me? Because if you're, si if you're sitting around doing nothing right now, not paying attention to anybody else's needs, you're ignoring me. That's my body. Or would he say, look how you're caring for me. Look how you're loving me. And you're thinking, but Christ, your physical body is seated up there in the heavenlies. But he says, no, but my spiritual body is right next to you. It's right here in your midst. So when you love this body, you love me. When you serve this body, you serve me. What would he say about you today? What would he say about me? That's a question we have to take up with him, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the way in which it can convict us and, and in good and, and right ways. Because we want to be all that we can be, both individually in the way that we have recognized the gifts that you've given us and want to be good stewards of them, but we want to be all that we can be as a collective whole. And I pray that today's sermon, your powerful word, would resonate in our hearts as, as, a, as a unit, as a body, as Paul calls us. That we're one. We're members of one another, and that when one of us hurts, we all hurt, and one of us rejoice, we all rejoice, and somehow you've designed each one of us to work in harmony with each other, and that takes work, and you haven't left us alone to do it on our own. You supply the strength. Spirit, you teach us, and you convict us, and you guide us, and you empower us, so we have all that we need. Father, you are good to your children. You have given us every gift we need in Christ in the heavenly realms. Let us be good stewards of all the gifts we have. We ask in your son's name, amen.